1 John 5, verses 13 through the end, which is verse 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 1 John. We thank you for the instruction that it gives to us, that it has given to us these last several weeks. God, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have right now to sit under this word and to receive what you desire to say to your church today, Lord. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you teach us, Lord, in the, the depths of our hearts, Lord, would your word resonate with our minds and hearts and our lives, Lord, and would we give you our whole selves, our whole attention. God, as your word says, that we have your attention. God, we pray that we would be attuned to what you have to say. We pray that it would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician, physicist, theologian, philosoph uh, philosopher, inventor, um, basically like just incredible Renaissance man. Um, I was doing some research on him this week and found out that he, uh, in all of his accomplishments, including being one of the first two inventors of a mechanical calculator, um, in all of that, he did it by the time he was 39 years old. He died two months after he turned 39 years old and accomplished incredible, incredible things. Outside of the church, Blaise Pascal is famous for his contributions in almost every field imaginable during that time. But in philosophy and theology, he is most famous for his argument for the existence of God, known as Pascal's wager. Essentially, Pascal said that human beings wager with their lives whether or not God exists or does not exist. That human beings place their bet on one or the other. They place their bet, does God exist or does God not exist? But the minimum bid is your entire life. The minimum bid is your entire existence, all that you know, all that you have, now and eternal. And so Pascal's conclusion was that it is better for human beings to live as though God does exist and to seek to know him because the cost 
is minimal and temporary in this life, but the reward is eternal and infinite. And if we do not believe that God exists and do not seek to know him, then the reward one might gain for rejecting God in this life is temporary and material in this world, yet the consequences of rejecting God, if you are wrong in doing so, are infinite and eternal. And so to summarize, the way most people speak of Pascal's wager that many of us have heard and are familiar with is that it is better to believe and be wrong than to disbelieve and be wrong. But is it really? Now, really quickly, I need to say I I stand in awe of this man, his mind, Before I throw Pascal under the bus, I need to say that he has contributed a great deal to society, to theology and philosophy, and I'm grateful for Pascal's wager because I believe that it has gotten many people to consider the reality of eternity. It makes you stand back and think about what we're sacrificing now and in the future if we do not give ourselves to God. But is it really better to believe and be wrong than to disbelieve and be wrong? See, the reason this frustrates me is because if that is our entrance into faith, that, well, what do I have to lose? And we don't actually develop an honest intimate relationship with God, then what it creates is actually a faith that is built in uncertainty. It makes faith a gamble. It's like a poker game. I see my cards. I think I've got a chance. I'm all in. But I don't think that's the way the Bible talks about faith. I don't think that's the faith that Jesus wants us to have. But this is often the way the world outside of the church views those who have faith. It's born out of a lack of confidence in a world that's pervaded by many ideas about God and the origins of the universe in a world where nothing feels certain and what is valued most is tolerance and the acceptance of other people's truth. The best anyone can do when it comes to God is to have faith because we can't have confidence. That's the way the world thinks about us. That's the way the world views the church. Maybe you're here today and that's what you think of faith. That faith is a crutch. That faith is what people need to get themselves through their lives because they can't have certainty or, they, or they're too weak to just acknowledge that nothing else happens after this life. People have faith because they can't have certainty. People have faith because they can't have confidence. But is it really not possible to have confidence? Is it not possible to have certainty in your faith? What would it mean to you to leave this place today with confident faith? What would your life look like? What would change if you left this place confident in Christ, confident in what he has done for you, confident in what he has called you to? How would your life look different? 
See, the Apostle John concludes his letter to the church by assuring them that their faith is not a gamble. Seven times in nine verses, he uses the phrase, we know, or that you may know. We know this. We know that. I say this, that you may know this to be certain. He doesn't write this letter to the church because it's better to believe and be wrong. What have you got to lose? Just give it a try. That's not why he's writing this. He writes so that we would have confidence. Now, some of you are here today, no doubt, because you desperately need confidence in God today. The other reason I don't like Pascal's wager is because it says that we have to wait for eternity to find out whether or not we have our reward. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the reward for faith is now. It's God now. It's Christ now. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit now. It's his promises now. It's his presence now. We don't have to wait for eternity. So what this text is saying The confidence that we have is that you can leave here today. You can receive right now through faith in Jesus, confidence in who God is, who he has made you to be, what he has done for you, and what your destiny is in eternity. You can know that now. You can know that today. And that is my prayer for us, that we would leave this place with confident faith. And so our text today, John gives us seven certainties. Seven. Yes, this is a seven-point sermon. Buckle up. Clear your calendars. No, I'm kidding. Um, Not about the seven points, but about the calendars thing. I'm going to try to get us out here at, at at a decent time. But seven certainties in this text. Seven things you can be certain of when you put your faith in Jesus. Number one, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then know for certain that you have eternal life. Not that you will have eternal life, that you have eternal life. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. The abundant life begins the moment you put your trust in Jesus. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to wait. You can receive eternal life now. There's nothing uncertain in John's mind about eternal life. It's not just a good idea or, uh, or, or, you know, I write this to you to let you know that in all of the options and all of the gods and deities in the world that you've chosen probably the best one. That's not what he says. So I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you have eternal life. You have eternal life. The reason this is significant is because apart from Christ, you don't. Apart from Christ, we don't have eternal life. You see, human beings were made to live in the presence of God forever in the Garden of Eden. He had made the tree of life that was there in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And as the humans worshiped God and remained in his presence, they had access to the tree of life, that they could eat and not die. But then they sinned and they were removed from God's presence in the garden and therefore removed from the tree of life. And so no longer 
is life without death possible? But Jesus came to put to death the sin that separated us from God, giving us again access to God and access to life in God. And so Jesus becomes to us like a tree of life that those who believe can receive from him and not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the reason it is significant that John is writing to us that we may have confidence that we have eternal life is because apart from the, the, the Jesus that John preaches, we don't have eternal life. But it's offered to us through Christ. But how can we know for certain? Okay, John, thank you. You're writing so that I can know that I have eternal life. But am I supposed to just take your word for it? Because there's lots of people that have a lot to say about who God is and what he's done and how to find eternal life. Should we just take John's word for it? Yeah. John's not some dude on YouTube waxing eloquent about who he thinks God is. He walked with Jesus. He is an eyewitness to Jesus bringing life out of death by casting out demons and healing the sick by literally raising the dead. And then he saw Jesus himself die on the cross, was buried, put in the tomb. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and John saw him and he was like, you were dead and now you're alive. And Jesus said, yes, I am, believe. And you too will raise from the dead. Should we just take John's word for it? Absolutely. Because John's got nothing to gain by lying to you. All of his friends and himself included were beaten for their faith. All of his closest friends, they died for this belief in the resurrection. John was imprisoned. He was exiled. He's got no reason to lie to you and every reason to try to deny the truth of what he's saying here. He writes this this to us because he knows what the power of eternal life does in the heart of a person. You can look face and beatings in the death, you in, in, in the face. You can look death in the face. You can look cancel culture in the face. You can look all of the things that this world tries to tell you about yourself and how you're wrong for believing in Jesus and how intolerant you are, you can look it in the face and say, I believe because John's got no reason to hide this from me. Should we take John's word for it? Yes, we can take John's word for it. It's not better to believe and be wrong. If John is wrong, he loses everything. Paul says it's not better to believe and be wrong. He says if we're wrong about Jesus and wrong about the resurrection, we are to be pitied above all people. The people who wrote the New Testament did not believe it was better to believe and be wrong. It's better to believe because Jesus is the true and living God. It's better to believe because we were made to believe. It's better to believe not because we have some future reward, but because we have Jesus now. Because through faith, God gives himself to his people. And he's not wrong. And you who believe, you're not wrong. You have eternal life in Christ. And the reason you have life is our second point of certainty. 
If you've put your faith in Jesus, then know for certain that you are born of God. The reason you have eternal life is because you have been reborn. This is what it means to be a born again Christian. We're born once into this world, which John says is under the power of Satan. But when you put your faith in Jesus, in the Son of God, you are united to him and you are reborn into the family of God over whom Satan has no power. If you are a member of God's family through faith, Satan has no power over you. You're not a part of his world. You're not a part of his kingdom. You're not under his rule. You're under Christ. We have been born of God and are a member of God's family. And as a member of God's family, there are more things that we can be confident in. Number three, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then know for certain you are a child of God. And that means that you have God's attention. You have God's attention. He is mindful of you. He's aware of you. He knows what is going on in your life. He's a good father. He listens to his children. He's attentive to you. My, my youngest son is eight years old, and he's been experiencing some uh, separation anxiety. I had to think about this the other day as to, gosh, why, you know, why is, he, is he feeling this way? He's eight years old, and so one-fourth of his life has been covid and in the midst of that, my family moved to Carpinteria and everything in his world changed. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of insecurity there. And so the other day we were talking to him about, about church and kids ministry and, and, and being in kids ministry. And, and he says, but, but what if I try to find you and I don't know where you are? And I said, I said, buddy, you always know where I'll be. I'm like, just walk in. I'm, I'm, I'm up front. And he said, yeah, but I can't come to you. And it honestly made me sad. And I had to think about that. Is, that. is that the heart of our father in heaven? That he's, he's too busy or, or, or not right now. Hold on, son. Hold on, daughter. He said, I, I, can't, I can't come to you. And I had to think about that. And I had to like actually go to God. I said, okay, God, if, if my son needed me, is he allowed to interrupt a sermon? Or do I think I'm that important? And what I have to say is that important that he can't come to me. And I have, I have to tell you, church, I love what I do. If my son comes into this room and needs me, y'all are going to wait. <laughs> You're going to wait. <laughs> we have the attention of our Father in heaven. He is available to us. He hears us when we cry out to him. See, this doesn't sound like a novel concept to us because most of us were born in the Western world and have lived under these Judeo-Christian principles for some time now. And so we're entitled to this idea of a God that listens to us, a God that hears our prayers. But this was a mind-blowing concept in the, in the ancient world. Listen to Psalm 8. The psalmist says, What is mankind that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. This was the king of God's people. And he's saying, Who am I? That you even pay attention to me. Church, you have God's undivided attention. John says that, he not only listens to our prayers, but he answers our prayers. 
Number four, if you've put your faith in Jesus, know for certain that not only do you have God's attention, but you have the requests that you ask of him. See, God's will for you and for this world will be accomplished. Nothing can stand in the way of God getting his way. But he invites his children to participate with him in his work in the world. And he does so through inviting us to ask for the things that he wants to give us. To ask for the things that he wants to do. He can do them in a heartbeat on his own. But isn't it beautiful that our Father in heaven apprentices us? Like a child learning the family business. Yes, the master, the, 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 the father can do the work on his own. But I remember when my dad let me crank the wrench on the car and, and learn how to change the oil and learn how to, how to rotate the tires and learn how to do these things with him. See, God can do it without us, but he invites us into it because it's through prayer and asking God to give us what our hearts desire that we learn what God's heart desires. See, there's a, a passage in the Bible that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then we go to church and we worship, we muster up as much delight desire is delight as we can. And we ask for something and God doesn't give it to us. And we say, see God, you're a liar. I delighted in you and you didn't give me what I desired. But listen to that passage again. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you're delighting in the Lord, what is your desire? The Lord. The Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you himself and he'll give you his heart. And he will actually give you the desire to desire the things that he wants to do and give to you. So, so often we know these passages. We go, okay, uh, God, I have your attention. You hear my prayers. You will answer me. You'll give me the things that I pray according to your will. And then we don't pray because we don't know God's will. And we're afraid to ask for something because it might not be God's will. But the way we learn God's will is the same way a child learns it's not okay to have candy for breakfast. We ask for it. And then our loving father says, oh, that's so cute. No. Maybe later. We learn God's will and we learn God's heart by just coming to him with what's on ours and handing it to him and allowing him to move as he desires and to give what he desires. So we can pray with confidence. Whether we, know, we believe we know God's will or not, we can pray with confidence because God has invited you to come to him with what is ever on your heart. He's going to sort it out and he's going to let you know his will and how he responds. This is how we learn God's heart. This is how we learn his will through prayer. But John says that there is one thing that we can always ask for and know that it is God's will to give. Number five, if you've trusted in Jesus, then know for certain you have victory over sin and Satan. It is always God's desire to give victory over sin and Satan. Now, victory over sin and victory over Satan could each be their own point, but I thought an eight-point sermon would be a little too much. John says that if someone is in sin, that we can pray and that God will give them eternal life. 
If someone is born of God, John says they cannot keep on sinning. So God will give you power to repent and turn from that sin. And those who are living in sin are not without hope. So long as the sin has not pervaded the person to such a degree that it pulls them out of faith completely and into apostasy. Apostasy is turning your back on Jesus. This is the danger of sin in a believer's life. This is what John calls in our passage, the sin that leads to death. See, it refers to sin that corrupts a person so completely that they turn their back on God for good. Now, this has led many people to debate whether or not a believer can lose their salvation. Is it possible for a believer to lose their salvation? See, John is clear. Someone who is born of God cannot be touched by the evil one. This means that nothing can snatch you out of God's hand. This means that Satan cannot bring about eternal or permanent loss in your life. That Satan cannot take you away from God. So can you lose your salvation? No, you're not going to wake up one morning and go, where did it go? You're not going to lose your salvation. But according to this view, it would appear as though John is saying that a believer can forfeit their salvation. That you can let go of it. Nothing can snatch you out of God's hand. But according to this passage, it would appear that it is possible to go so far into the sin that separates. Remember that sin brings death and Jesus is like a tree of life to us, that he gives life to us. And if we continue to separate ourselves from God, from his presence, from his goodness, and pursue other things that are not of him, and his presence in our life grows thinner and thinner and thinner as we continue to turn our backs on Jesus and into sin, we can leave him. And at the same time, I don't think it's John's point to argue whether someone is once saved, always saved. That's not the point, because so often that question comes from fear. John doesn't want us pursuing God from fear. He wants us pursuing God from confidence. He's not saying, and watch out, you might do this. No, he's saying, hey, if anyone's in sin, you can pray for them and God will give them life. He doesn't say not to pray for someone who is apostate, right? He doesn't say, I forbid you to pray for someone who has turned their back on Jesus. He's just saying, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who is in sin, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ who is living in sin. Pray for them and God will give them life, right? The point that he is making is that we can be certain that God will always grant victory over sin and Satan to anyone that asks for it in Jesus. God will always grant victory over sin and Satan to anyone that asks for it in Christ. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your sin is that you're struggling with, maybe you have been a believer in the past and you have turned away from Jesus and you're sitting there thinking, have I committed the sin that leads to death? If there is breath in your lungs and willingness to put your faith in Jesus again, you have not committed the sin that leads to death. 
God will always give victory over sin and over Satan to anyone who asks for it in Christ. The problem comes not because you're struggling with sin. So often we're struggling with sin and we go like, oh gosh, like, God, are you even with me? Do I even have the power? Do I, can, I, can, I, can I overcome this? The problem is not that you're struggling with sin. The problem comes when you stop struggling. When you stop fighting against sin, stop resisting sin. That is the danger. If that's you and you believe in Christ and you're losing the fight against sin and temptation and just caving and not even fighting anymore, then I beg you, I warn you, turn to Jesus. He will give you life. Keep fighting. Invite brothers and sisters in Christ into that space with you. Don't use that as an opportunity to turn away from Jesus. See this as your warning. You're turning away from Jesus. And whatever it is, it cannot give you life. But Jesus can. If there is breath in your lungs and faith to pray, Jesus can give you life. If you're already a believer, then the invitation here is to pray for one another. And God will give us life. And that means, number six, that if you've trusted in Jesus and you're a member of God's family, that you have a responsibility to God's family. Know for certain that you have a place in God's family. You have a place in this church. You have a responsibility in God's family. You have a responsibility to this church. If Reality Carpinteria is your home church, then you have a responsibility to those around you and to this community to pray and protect. To pray for the church and to protect the church in your prayers. Jesus is constantly living to intercede on behalf of the saints. Intercession is to pray for someone to stand in the gap, to pray for someone as though you yourself were in that situation. It's Moses on the mountain saying, God, if you're going to destroy Israel, then destroy me too. Because I am one of them. I'm a part of your people. And if you're going to destroy them, then destroy me as well. Even though Moses did not deserve to be destroyed for the sin of the golden calf. He said, if you're going to destroy them, destroy me as well. He stands in the gap. He intercedes. Jesus stands in the gap and says, Father, don't destroy your people. Destroy me instead. Nail me to the cross. Let me take the penalty for their sin so that they can have eternal life in my name. Jesus stands in the gap. He prays for you, constantly standing before the God, God our Father, reminding them, I have died for their sin. I have died for their sin. I have died for the sin. When the enemy would accuse you to God, oh, you they, look at them, sinner. Jesus says, I've died for their sin. Satan can't accuse you. He cannot touch you. If your faith is in Christ, Jesus intercedes for you. And us as his people, the body of Christ, we participate with Jesus in the ministry of intercession by praying for one another, by praying for those who are struggling, by praying for those who are sick, by praying for those who are hurting, by praying for those who are in need, by praying for those who are in sin. If you are a Christian, you have a responsibility to God's family to pray for them and to protect them through your prayers and to go out to them 
and to call them to repentance. You have a responsibility to God's family. See, some of us have been living on the periphery. We come to church, we leave church, we're not involved, we come to church again once, twice a month, maybe even four times a month, maybe every single Sunday, but we're not involved. We shake hands, we greet people, but we just kind of stay disconnected. We're on the periphery. And I just want to encourage you. I don't want to guilt you. I don't want to shame you. Just know there's a place for you here. You're welcome here to bring your whole self, to bring all that you are, all that you think and feel, all your fears, all your concerns, all your faith, all your sin. Don't let anything discredit you or or discount you from the place that God has given you in his family. Invest. Be a part of the life here. Be a part of the fellowship here, the worship here, the community here. And I want to ask you specifically, in light of this text, invest specifically in prayer. Okay, you can do that on your own, but we also have opportunities to come together and pray for the church, to pray for one another. Come out on a Wednesday night. Wednesday night right here, 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. We pray, we worship together. We pray for the church. We pray for what God's going to do on Sundays. We pray for one another. If people are sick or injured, we pray. Just come, just come and pray and be a part of that. Come at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, right here in the foyer. We have pre-service prayer where we intercede on behalf of Carpinteria and the coastlands. We intercede on behalf of you. We prayed for you this morning that you would come, that you would receive God's word, that you would respond, that you would grow in confidence. Come and and pray. Join our prayer ministry. We've got a prayer ministry on Sundays. Some of them are available on the sides of the sanctuary during the second set of worship. They're here to pray for you, but we're also developing an intercession team who during the gathering will be in a quiet room praying. As the word is being preached, they are praying that it would be received, that it would bear fruit. Come and, and pray. Experience the life that, will, that, that comes through prayer, not only to yourself, but also to those that you're praying for. So that when you pray and ask God to do something according to his will, and he does it, you will know, I know God's will. It was God's will to do that in that person's life. It was God's will to do this thing. Because when God answers our prayers, we respond to his work a little differently. We respond to his work a little differently. We respond in greater joy, in greater assurance. God, you invited me to be a part of that. We come here on Sundays and and we experience what God is doing and, and people worshiping and people giving their lives to Jesus. And we're like, man, that's so cool. But when you see that people are coming that you've been praying for, whether you know them or not, and you see God move in their life, you're like, God, you let me be a part of that. Why did you let me be a part of that? You could have just done this, left me on the sidelines, but you invited me into that. It's because you're a child of God and he's apprenticing you. He's teaching you his heart. He's teaching you his will. He's making you like Jesus. Know for certain. Know for certain that he who has begun a good work and you will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He is making you mature in Christ and he does that by inviting you to participate with what he is doing in his people, in his family for the sake of his glory. 
gosh, for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time and, and serving in very, various capacities, let's not lose the beauty of that. You know how crazy it is that God invites us into this? It's amazing. The nobility of that work, the dignity of that work, the value that it shows humanity. God, what is mankind that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? that you invite us into this. All of this is true. All of this is true through faith in Jesus. You don't need to wager. You don't need to gamble. Faith is not a poker game. It's not like, well, I've got good enough cards not to fold, but not good enough cards to bet more than the minimum. Sometimes that's our faith. God will come on Sundays but I don't have enough confidence that you actually want to bless me to give you more than Sundays, to give you more of my life, to give you more of my obedience, to give you more of my finances, to give you more of my resources, to give you more of my talents, to give you more of my praise, to give you more of my worship, to give you more of my attention. I'm going to bet the minimum. Faith isn't a wager. It's not a gamble. All of this we can be certain of because all of these things lead us to our last point, the most important, important point of all. If you put your faith in Jesus, then know for certain you have Jesus, the true God and eternal life. You are in Christ. You belong to him. You have been united to him. The reason that you have life the reason that you are born of God, the reason you have God's attention, the reason you have what, uh, what you ask for according to his will, the reason you have a place in God's family and a responsibility in God's family is because you are in Christ and all of those things are his. They belong to Jesus. See, the, the, the other thing that I'm just, I don't know why I'm throwing Pascal under the bus. He was an amazing man. But the reason I don't, I'm not particularly fond of this is because it turns faith into this transaction that God, I will, give, I will acknowledge your existence if you give me a reward in eternity that is somehow like separate from who God is. And that's not it. We come to God. The best thing we get in the gospel, the best thing we get through faith is God. We get Jesus we're united to him like a marriage. Our lives are inseparable from him. And so because righteousness belongs to him, you're righteous. Because life belongs to him, you have eternal life. Because holiness belongs to him, God has declared you holy. Because uh, uh, sonship as the only begotten son belongs to him, you are a child. The only reason we have any of these blessings like justification and righteousness and adoption, all of these things, the only reason we have any of that is because it all belongs to Jesus. And we have been united to him. The reason you have life is not because Jesus gives it to you as a reward for choosing him. Like you answered a test, a question on a test, right? Gold star. That's not it. The reason you have anything from God is because you have God himself. Remember how John began this letter. 1 John 1, 1 through 4 says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John has encountered the true God in Jesus Christ. And through faith, he says that you too can have the same fellowship with God. And so John ends his letter the same way he begins his letter, urging faith in the true God, Jesus Christ. Because faith in anything else other than the living Christ, he says, is idol worship. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Giving our lives, our attention, our worship, our time, our energy to anything else is not as good as giving it to Jesus. It's following powerless, deaf, mute pieces of wood. There's no confidence in idols. There's no power in idols. There's no life in idols. There's no victory in idols. All of this is available in Christ and Christ alone because he is, I don't know how to get any clearer than what John says. He is the true God. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then you can have certainty that all of these promises belong to you. All of them belong to you. But we struggle to experience the weight and power of them all, don't we? We struggle to experience this kind of confidence on a 24-hour-a-day basis. Because if we're honest, we're still, we're still trying to find life and pleasure and joy in, in other things, whether they be sinful or whether they're good things, they're just not God. Good things that take our attention away from the Lord. I just want you to remember who it is that you've trusted in and who it is that lives in you and trust that he is better than all other good things. Remember that he is your your greatest treasure. There's nothing else in this world that has died for your sins and given you life in themselves other than Jesus. Jesus is our, our greatest treasure. Think of like going into a museum right? And you've got all kinds of things on the wall, but like the, the, the prized possession of the museum is the centerpiece. And everything else is basically just furniture pointing your attention to the thing that the museum curator really wants you to focus on. Think about the centerpiece of your living room, right? That the whole thing is set up so that your eyes, your, your attention would be drawn to that thing, Maybe you're like, oh, is that what interior design is? Curate your life so that Jesus is at the center. It's the centerpiece where all attention is just drawn to him, that we're all just furniture in a living room pointing attention to Jesus. He is our greatest treasure. He is the thing that we want to look at constantly and we want people to see in our lives constantly. Find your delight in him and be certain that your experience of his presence in your life will manifest in confidence and certainty in all of these ways. But if you haven't trusted in Jesus, then you can be certain that none of these promises belong to you. But today they can become yours. If there's breath in your lungs and faith in your heart, 
to confess to Christ that he is your righteousness, that he has died for your sins and that there is eternal life in no one else but him, then it will be yours. Everything else is fleeting at best. So I want to invite you to simply ask, believing that he is able to give you life and he will give you life. And whatever you risk losing, that Pascal says is is temporary and material and, and in this life only. Remember also what it is that you are losing when you put your faith in Jesus. And that's death, condemnation, and living under the power of the enemy. All of that you will lose. You will lose death. You will lose living under the power of the enemy. And you will be given an incredible freedom and joy, not just in the next world, but in this life. Jesus is, he's worth it all. He is worthy of it all. We'll close with this. If you're here today and you're wrestling with faith, I just want to encourage you, Jesus is different than you think. He's more beautiful than you could possibly imagine. He's, he's, he's better than I can even tell you in my limited words, in my limited ability. Jesus is better than you have been told. And if you're here and you're waiting to have confidence before you put your faith in Jesus, I'll be honest with you, it's not going to happen. That's not the way that it works. A pursuit of confidence before giving your life to Jesus is an attempt to live by confidence and not by faith. But scripture says the righteous will live by faith. The only way to confidence is through faith. So often I seek to like get all of my questions answered. God, what about this? What about this? What about this? Because I want to live by knowledge. I want to live by confidence. I want to live by certainty and not by faith. I think many times God doesn't give me the things I ask for, like clarity and, and, and uh, you know, knowing the right decision on a certain thing. Because he wants me to live by confidence and not by clarity, not by knowledge. So the only way to have confident faith is to put faith before confidence and to know that scripture defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith and confidence are not mutually exclusive. They just need to be in the right order. And if you put your faith in Jesus, then he will give you the necessary confidence. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that our confidence is not in what we have done for you, but what you have done for your people. God, all we can do is receive these truths by faith. And so Lord, where we are afraid to put our faith in you, whether for the first time or in a particular area in our lives. God, we pray that you would first give us courage to put our faith in you and that you would comfort us with confidence, knowing that it is in the true and living God that we have believed. 
And God, I pray that you would fill us with joy and stir our hearts for worship in this place. Because of who you are, because you are worthy of it all. Our voices, our breath, our very lives, God, you are worthy of it all. You are so good. Our confidence is in your faithfulness to your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thank you.